Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Morning, Springs Church. So happy to be back with all of you. My wife, Beth, is sitting up on the front row. Our family is back. We have just, uh, many of you know, we were away for, gosh, it was almost six weeks, maybe seven weeks, but it took a long extended time after we, I caught COVID. And then we had the opportunity to head out as a family on a vacation to the Bahamas. Yeah, we almost didn't come back. Just to st- <laughs> trying to figure out like an economic plan, how to stay in the islands, you know, trying. But it was beautiful. Uh, people have been asking, how was the vacation? It, it was spectacular. It was hard to get out there. Once we were there, it was awesome. Got to see my parents. They went out with us. Got to see my brother, sister-in-law. Our, our niece was there. Um, it was just unbelievable. And everyone's asking, what was your favorite part? You know, how to go? And I said, you know what was amazing? My dad, and he blessed us, he, he rented a private cabana on the beach. Yeah, oh, I mean, this thing had a private bathroom. It had a shower. It had a guy that came and just took orders for food and drinks all day long. You could just order anything you want. And everybody was ordering like chicken sandwiches and I want a shrimp salad and I want this. And, and I bet you can imagine what I was ordering. I, I looked at the guy and I said, is there any way that you could just go get me like a garbage can filled of ice with Diet Coke all the way up <laughs> to the brim. And he came, he came with like the, the champagne, like, like uh, cases that they put the champagne in with all the ice and it was just piled with Diet Cokes. And, I'm, and I remember I was sitting in the cabana and I'm just looking out at this beautiful beach in this water. I would just grab a Diet Coke and I would just wade off into the water. And as I'm like sitting in the water, I would like pop the can and I would just say, God, this must be heaven. This, this is unbelievable. And, you know, that, that inner voice, probably not the Lord, probably myself, it was something along the lines that said, nah, this is not heaven. It's even better than this. Amen. And then I thought, what would it be like? It must be like sitting and wading in the water, and it looks just as clear and just as amazing, and you float in it just like salt water, but when you drink it, it tastes like Diet Coke. <laughs> so anyways... Now you know how my mind actually interprets scripture before I get up here and read all the commentary, commentator, commentaries and get it all right. All right. We ready to get into the word this morning? All right, let me pray a blessing over this and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this church. Thank you for my wonderful family and just being back with my wife and my kids. Lord, we missed it. And I just pray a blessing over this word. God, I've done my best to put together your thoughts. You had me take some things out. You had me put some things back in. You you, you had me read through different books and different things. And Lord, I just pray that now as I'm about to speak, you would bring it all together to what it is that you want to say. And you would bless it under your anointing. Not for my sake, not because I'm, I'm a great person or a great preacher or a great, no, 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 for the glory of your name and for the fact that you meet your people in your faithfulness, Lord. So I commit it to you now and I thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, let me put this down here. All right. You know, getting some time off to recuperate and to refresh, um, I was given the opportunity and I was given the blessing to get back to one of my true loves. 
First is spending time with my beautiful wife. That's the first and foremost love of my life. But the second thing that I just enjoy doing that that you can't tear me away from is, is I like to work on, and you've heard it a million times, old vintage motorcycles. In fact, I'm in the process right now of finishing up a bike that a friend of mine is helping me build. He, he's got most of the parts, putting it together. It's a 1941 Harley-Davidson knucklehead, and it's being purpose-built just to race in a beach race in New Jersey come October. This is the actual bike. It's almost done. Uh, got to finish up the gas tanks. Got to do a little bit on the carbs. They have to be rebuilt. The linkage has to be done. But, but this thing is literally a beast. And just so you get an idea of where it's going, this is the picture of the race. Let me show you the race. This is where I'm going to be heading with it. So this, this is the race that will be happening out in New Jersey. You literally get a beach right by the water, and you just go at it with a bunch of friends all day long at an eighth of a mile. I mean, it's unbelievable. I put in my application. I had to get a phone call. They had to interview me to make sure everything on the bike was proper and period correct, and they're asking all the questions. At the end of the interview, they finally said it. They said, you are accepted. And I was like, yes! Yeah, I mean, look how cool that is. That is cool. That is amazing. That moves me up in the cool points as a pastor. Like, I'm 10 more. Find any pastor out there that's cool. I'm doing that, okay? That's what I'm doing. So, but I'm excited. And one of the things you begin to learn as you work on these old finicky motorcycles is that they're really tough to troubleshoot problems sometimes. Because when you're driving them down the road and you hear some type of clunk or you hear some weird vibration or you see some puff of smoke come out of the exhaust, you think right off the bat you know what the problem is. And what happens is, because you think you know what the problem is, you spend all this time and this energy tearing into the motorcycle to fix it. And I've done it. I said, well, that's got to be in the engine. I hear a ping in the cylinder. I've pulled cylinders apart. i pulled pistons off, right? My wife has come in. The whole bike is apart. And I got it out of the machinist, and I got it out here, and I'm putting it all back together after months of work, saying that's got to be the problem. And then I go and I kickstart it, and I hear it all over again. And you get so frustrated because you spend months, literally winter sometimes, and you're putting in all this money, all this energy. You're telling your child, you're not going to college. You're not going to college. I, but I'm going to get this bike to work. And you're working on it, and you think it's in the transmission, and you work on the transmission. Then you think, ah, oh, it must be up in the neck bearings. It must be the neck cups. Maybe I just got to tighten that up. Then you think, ah, gosh, the flywheel. It must be unbalanced. I got to get to that fly. And you're doing all this stuff, and you're putting all the energy in again, and you're kicking it, and you're kicking it, and you're kicking kicking it, and the problem continues to persist. Everything that you troubleshot wasn't really the problem even to begin with. It gets to a point where you finally throw up your hands. My wife knows this. I've literally come in, right? And I said, well, the heck with it. I'm just going to drive it the way it is and hope for the best. And it sounds like a great plan. That sounds amazing until you're actually out on Voyager Parkway at 50 miles an hour and you realize you have no brakes. You go to hit the brake and <laughs> nothing's stopping. Or you're going into oncoming traffic or you're going into an intersection and your throttle cable unravels in your junction box and your throttle gets stuck wide open and you can't shut the bike off. You're just going full force into oncoming traffic, right? You think it's a great idea. In fact, I've come home some days, and I'm like pale white. And Beth is like, what happened? What took place? And I was like, I can't talk about it right now. I'm like shaking as I go. But I, I do look at her sometimes, and I said this. I said, at least I'm living life to the full. And at least, listen to me, at least I always have my focus on eternity, right? That, it's always there. I tell people all the time, you got a problem with worldliness? Get on one of my bikes and ride it for 15 minutes. By the time you're done, all you're going to be thinking about is seeing Jesus face to face. That is it. That's all that's going to be in your mind. I will get the worldliness right out of your heart. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Everybody in this room is thinking, what in the world is Pastor Michael talking about? What does this have to do with a message today? He's gone six weeks. He gets to refresh for six. And this is the dribble he brings back to the church? But let me answer the question. What I want to do, and this is what I'm going to begin setting up. So I want to take some time today, and I want to take a little bit of this idea, this illustration of trying to troubleshoot these problems in these old motorcycles and finding out that the problem that you were trying to fix wasn't really the problem even to begin with. I want to take that idea, that illustration, and I want to begin to apply that to what Pastor Joshua actually opened up to us last week on Ephesians chapter 6. I want to apply that to spiritual warfare. That's what I want to talk about. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit more of an introduction to spiritual warfare using that illustration today. And then over the next couple weeks, I'm going to go through Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to talk about what it means to put on the helmet of salvation, what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, what it means to put on the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, right? Take up the shield of faith, the sword of the spear. We're going to go through all these things, and I'm going to show you what they mean for us as believers. And after we've actually put these things on, how we begin to stand and how we actually fight right? So I'm excited about that. Now, one little caveat. In the midst of that four, maybe the six-week little mini-series that I'm going to do, I am going to speak one message on depression. God has been downloading some things to me from what I've walked through in COVID, even before that, and I'm putting that all together. It's maybe two weeks or three weeks out, but I'll send an email about that because I think people are going to want to hear some of the things that God is going to draw out of Scripture when you deal with melancholy or you deal with depression, and I think it'd be a very significant sermon. So just to give you a heads up, in the midst of the series, I'm going to hit that. It will go together with the spiritual warfare and show you and, and begin to bring that out as a body together. All right, are you ready? Ephesians chapter 6, let's get into it. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Give me an amen if some people are already there already. All right, here we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace." In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I love this part. And then pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for who? For all the Lord's people. Okay, I want to start by beginning to point out a few words that kind of jumped out at me as I was reading this text this last week. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to show you 10 through 13a. Ready for this? Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, notice how Paul begins to give us this vivid description, this picture of the enemy that we all face. 
think about it for a second. Paul could have said something along the lines of saying this. He said, put on the full armor of God so that you could fight against all these demons that are trying to take you out. He could have expressed the spiritual forces that we're up against in a much more simplistic manner, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? Listen to what he says again. He says, but look, there are rulers. There are authorities. There are powers. There are spiritual forces of evil. Whoa. Now, why in the world would Paul be describing the enemy to us this way? Because listen to me, Paul wants us to understand for the believer, for the Christian, I want you to get this, that number one, spiritual warfare is real. And number two, it is not to be taken lightly. Right? Listen to what he's trying to say. He's looking at us and he's saying the enemy is organized. Satan is not playing games. He has strategies. He's got tactics. He's got an army. He's got authorities. Not only does he have authorities, now there's spiritual forces in heavenly places that you don't even see, that you don't even know about. He's got sergeants. He's got generals. He's got privates. And they're all under his command. And they're all out to try to take down your faith. You ever want to read a great book about spiritual warfare? You can write this one down. We forget about this one. C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. That will blow your mind. You're like, oh my goodness, I never thought about it in this type of context. But, listen to this, at the exact same time, Paul tells us, don't be scared, don't be afraid, but be confident and be bold in the fight. Look what he says in verse 13, I love this. He says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Paul doesn't say, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you might actually stand your ground. He doesn't say, put on the full armor of God, there's a chance you could stand your ground. He says, no, 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 no. You'll put on the full armor of God, you'll put on the gospel, and it doesn't matter how organized the enemy actually is, it doesn't matter how fortified his space and his army is. It doesn't matter that there's rulers and principalities and there's generals and there's sergeants and there's privates and they're all lined up. It doesn't matter what strategies he's putting together. You put on that full armor of God. You put on the gospel and Paul, the Holy Spirit, comes back and says, you will stand. It's not an option for the believer. It will happen. But let's take it even a little bit further. Look back at the passage one more time. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now that word struggle in the Greek, you need to understand something. That gives a visual picture in the Greek of somebody down on all fours, knees and hands, battling it out, wrestling with their opponents. Do you see what the Bible is trying to show us? Do you see what it's trying to say to us? It says when you do spiritual warfare, it's not like you're out in the middle of a bunker somewhere and you're locked away and you kind of have these spiritual drones that you could work with remote control and you got a screen in front of you and you could heat seek the enemy and once you find him on the spiritual screen, you could just drop a bomb and he's taken out. He says, no, 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 it's not that where you get to fight this in the comfort of your home as if you're playing some type of Xbox 360. He says, no, 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 when you're in the midst of real spiritual warfare, it feels, listen to this, like life and death. It feels like you're on the ground battling with the enemy, like he's on your back and he's literally choking all the hope that's left inside of you. He's choking all the faith that's left inside. It feels like you're taking your last breath. And Paul says, despite what it feels like inside of your heart, 
and what it feels like to go through sometimes, this is what he says. He says, you put on the gospel, you put on the full armor of God, and no matter how you feel, you're getting through to the other side. You will be victorious. You will stand. God's promises are going to get you through. Because you have to understand, this warfare is not about us. This warfare is about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. It's about the devil and it's about God. And God doesn't lose. In fact, he already won it all. Ephesians chapter 6 again, verse 10 through 11. It says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now that word schemes, some translations will say wiles. Some translations will say strategies. If you meditate on this verse, you think it all the way through and you pay attention to what the Bible is really trying to show us, you know what it's saying? saying the enemy has been observing your life for years. He knows you better than you even know yourself. He knows your psychology. He knows the way you think, whether you're a positive thinker or a negative thinker. Glass half empty, glass half full. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your struggles with God. He knows your anxieties and your fears and even your deepest, darkest, hidden secrets. He has been watching, and you know what he's been doing is he's been watching you and taking notes. This is amazing. He's been tailor-making certain attacks and certain strategies just for you. And he does it for each one of us. They're different for all of us. Why? Because each of us have had different experiences in our lives that have shaped our view of God and a view of ourselves. And he knows what might work on Pastor Dave will not work on Michael. And what might work on Michael might not work on Beth. He, he's tailor-making his attacks. And you know what the Bible is trying to get through to us? Satan is not a dunce. He's not chaos like Joker in the Batman movies, just doing chaos everywhere, throwing everything he can at the wall to see what sticks. No, 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 get this. Satan is much more sly than that. He is more wise than we like to give him credit for. He has plans. He meets with his demons. They work through their ideas. They put their strategies together. And this passage of scripture, listen to this, this passage of scripture actually shows us one of the main strategies that he loves to use. Because the Bible tells us, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. But that word devil in the Greek is the word diablo, where we get our word diabolical from. And you know what's amazing about that word in the Greek? It's in the verb. It's not a noun. When it's talking about the devil, he's saying, hey, he is Diablo. Diablo means liar. Diablo means slander. Diablo means accuser. And he says, listen to me. This is in the tense of a verb, not a noun, which means, get this, it's not just what the devil is, although he is a liar. When you go through intense spiritual warfare, he sends one lie after another lie after another. He doesn't quit. He doesn't stop. It's in the verb tense. And he will hit you at every single angle. If you're dealing with finances, if you're dealing with things in your family, he'll hit you at the church. He'll hit you at home. He'll hit you everywhere you go. He won't stop lying. It's not like just a few that you can just kind of push to the side. He continuously keeps it coming. I remember a number of years ago, 
I was listening to a teaching on how Satan lies to us, and I'll never, never forget this illustration. It was profound. The teacher said it's like a man or a woman walking up to a piano, and the back is open. And he says, I don't know if you know this, but if you stick your head into a piano and you sing a perfect note, an A, a G, an E, whatever it is, if you sing a perfect note, the corresponding string to that note will begin to vibrate and it will sing back. Without you ever touching the piano, without you touching any of the keys, just through your singing alone, you can make one of those strings sing back. You can make it begin to vibrate. This is exactly how Satan, how Diablo lies to us. In fact, let me put something up on screen. I want to read it to you, and then we'll get further into it. Ready? You can, take a, you can take a screenshot if you want. It says this. The devil does not make a good person bad. Ready for this? The devil makes a flawed person worse. <laughs> See, the devil watches us. He observes our natural struggles. For some of us, listen to this, it's the fear of the future. We just can't let it go. We can't trust God with it. We want to be in control. We want to be our own gods. And we see what's happening in the economical climate in the world. For some who are missionaries, countries being closed, countries being, and we're thinking in our mind, what does the future hold? And we want to control it. We have this fear. And he watches that. He sees that. For others, it's pride. You're unteachable. Doesn't matter how many friends speak to you the same issue. Doesn't matter if you're church pastors, but you just won't listen. You can have a list of seven people saying, no, 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 you got a problem. This is an issue. And you just keep going on and keep doing it and you won't listen to anybody. For some, it's anger. At a drop of a hat, we can lose it. We could just blow up. For others, listen to me, it's an unhealthy concern for our children. Where we have begun to cross the line of being a parent into trying to be their savior. We are not their savior. We raise them, we love them, we have concern for them, but there comes a point in every parent's life, just like Moses, you're gonna have to put him in the basket, which is the ark, which is Christ themselves, and let them go down the river. You gotta trust that there's a calling on their life and God is gonna see them through all the way to the end, even though there's alligators and there's hippopotamuses and everything around that can take that child out. And you can't follow them the rest of your life. And there comes a place where we start shifting from being a parent to trying to be Jesus. We're shifting in our kids. And it's not right. God says that's an unhealthy concern. It's a, you got to be at peace with the fact that you put them into my hands. For others, listen to me, it's isolation. You're single and you just want to be married and you feel like everyone's moving on in life and you feel like you don't have a mate and you feel like you're home alone and it, it, there's just an isolation that bounds up inside of you. And the enemy, he's watching all of this. And when he, we go through trials, when we go through all these types of things, what he does is he begins to aggravate what is already inside of us with lies. He makes the piano strings begin to sing. That's why the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't be wrath. Why? Because you're going to give the enemy a foothold. If you let that stuff just build up inside your heart, I've seen it with my wife. We've been in fights. If we don't reconcile that fight, if we don't deal with it that night and we go to separate bedrooms to go to sleep, all night long the enemy comes and he begins to whisper to try to aggravate the frustration and the anger in our hearts. Well, Michael's always like that. He never listens to you. 
right? And then he speaks to me. Well, she just is inconsiderate. She doesn't recognize you work at the church all day and you're trying to keep everything together. And then you come home and she doesn't help you out with anything. And, and he goes back and forth with this self-speak inside of our hearts with these lies where he begins to aggravate the frustration and the anger in us so that we come back the next day and we begin to blow up. We throw the lamp, we scream, we yell, we head out. And what he really wants to do is he wants to bring destruction in the marriage and separate us from God. You see it in 1 Timothy. Paul is telling Timothy to actually put elders into the church. And what does he say about the elders? He says, hey, there's some requirements that you're going to have to follow. And one of the requirements is don't put a young man who is new in his faith in that position. Why? Because he might be puffed up with pride and he might fall into Satan's snare. The pride is what opens the door for Satan's snare. And I've seen it in churches, young people who have no real depth with the Lord end up in these places of position. And they haven't gone through trials in life. They haven't been brought to a place where they understand God's mercy fully. And they start coming in and the enemy starts playing on the pride. They get into a fight with a congregant. They get in a fight and they start speaking. They don't know who you are. You deserve more honor than that. They don't know you're at home praying for this church. They don't know what you're doing. This is a position that deserves honor. And he plays it up until it begins to aflame. And then that elder starts fighting with other elders. He starts fighting with the pastor. He starts fighting with different congregants. He starts taking a few sheep to his side. And before you know it, you got a church split and the church begins to die. And the enemy sits laughing because he strategized and he prepared the attack. And he knew just the way, after observing our lives, the lies that would need to be spoken, the strings that would need to be moved to be able to bring about his purposes. Who knows what I'm talking about? Right? Now watch this. The enemy attacks. The enemy creates and tailors and makes different lies for you and me in one of two categories, always one of two. And I'll put it up on the screen, you can write this down. He either uses, ready for this, lies of temptation, or he uses lies of accusation. It'll always be one of two. It's different lies, it's different strategies, but they always fall in one of the two camps. Now, when I talk about Satan Taylor fitting certain lies to go after and exploit your weaknesses, you need to understand, He's extremely crafty. And when he sends principalities and authorities out to trip us up, they're not idiots. So when he comes and lies to you, it's not like an audible voice that you hear outside your head where you could defend yourself against it. You can say, oh, I know who that is. That's Satan. I'm not going to listen to that. Nah, 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 nah. Like, no, that's not, that's not how it happens. You know what he does? He comes and he begins to agitate and speak self-talk inside of your own heart. And he mimics the voice of one or two people. He either mimics your voice or he mimics the voice of God. And you can't discern it. You don't know which one it is. Is that me? Is that God? And you never think it's the enemy. How many of us go there? No, that couldn't be the enemy. That's got to be. That's the right voice. That's this. And we start thinking there's self-talk that's actually happening in the heart that's disguised. And we can't differentiate. We don't know who it actually is. And if that wasn't bad enough... Then he starts taking the Bible and he starts twisting the scriptures and pulling them out of context and he uses the word of God through the self-talk in our own heart to begin to condemn us and to begin to separate us from God. Okay, quick clue just to know it's the enemy's voice. 
if it's drawing you away from God, it's Satan. <laughs> Just to let you know. If it's creating you repentance, if it's creating you a love for the Lord, if it's encouraging your heart to get back with God, that's the Lord. See, just like the old motorcycles that I was speaking about at the beginning, when you come under heavy spiritual attack where you're fighting all these trials in your marriage, in your family, and then the enemy comes and he bombards you with lies, many times we think the problem is one thing and we give all our attention all our effort to that when the problem is actually something else altogether. That's how he works. We think the problem is God's mad at me, right? I've repented, I've wept over what I've done, but God's mad at me. And the way to fix it, now the way I'm gonna fix it, this is me with the motorcycle, I'm gonna tear the whole motorcycle apart, I'm gonna make everything, right? This is the way that we fix it. Now I'm gonna earn myself to get back into his good graces. So I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read more. I'm going to seek more. I'm going to go out. I'm going to evangelize. Anybody ever evangelize uh, guilt evangelism? Anyone ever do that before? I've done it. I've gone out to the streets. I'm screaming at people across. Get saved. You need to get saved. Not because I care about their soul. I just want to feel better about my relationship with God. If I get somebody saved, I'm doing pretty well. And then I can come into the presence of God and feel like he's not mad at me anymore. We all do it. You laugh. We all do it, and we think this is the problem. This is the problem. We think the problem is we're stupid. We think the problem is we're failures. We think the problem is I'm the worst parent on earth. We think the problem, and that he gets us into this place where we're trying to address all these issues when the reality, the problem is we're under a spiritual attack, and the enemy has created these strategic lies that he's creating all this self-talk inside of our own hearts that we're not differentiate that that's actually him, and we're not able to actually deal with the root of the problem where we could expose him for who he is. We could shut him down and move on in our walks with the Lord. And again, Satan always lies one of two ways. He either sings into your heart lies of temptation or he sings into your heart lies of accusation. See, when Satan uses lies of temptation, you know what he does? I've watched this in my own life. He begins to play up God's love and his mercy. And you know what he does? And he hides away God's holiness and righteousness and the fact that he's Lord over our lives. He, he plays it up. He uses self-talk inside of the heart to say, well, God loves you. God's with you. God's this. And he does it in such a way to get us to do something where we're going to reap consequences later on. And not only reap consequences, but we would begin opening up doors to allow him to come in with more lies of accusation where he can sing inside of our hearts and he can agitate more stuff so we feel more depressed, more discouraged, more melancholy, so we're less of a testimony on the earth and our Christian inheritance begins to stop in its tracks of what we actually get to live in. That's exactly what he does. And when he comes and he begins to use lies of accusation, you know what he does? He plays up the holiness of God. He shows you how much God hates sin. He shows you how much God is, is a God who's a, a righteous judge. And then he plays down God's mercy. He plays down God's forgiveness. He hides away the finished work of the cross from you. So then you make a mistake or you sin or you do something and you feel it in your heart as if now God doesn't love you. As if, as if he's not faithful when you are faithless. As if all the promises of God of his patience to be with you while you grow as a believer is completely gone. As if the blood is not powerful enough to be able to cleanse you of what you've done. 
As if rapists could be forgiven, murderers could be forgiven. The people who literally put Jesus on the cross could be forgiven, but not your sin. Oh, he's holy. He's holy. And he hides his mercy, his love. He hides away the things that we used to walk in that we were so confident about. I have this letter. I've read it here before. It's from John Newton, one of the greatest pastors, man, of all time. John Newton, and some of you know who he is. He, he was the captain of a slave ship before he got saved. And after he got saved, he used to just suffer from just condemnation and guilt for what he had done in the past. He was a big part of the abolitionist movement that finally just ended the slavery. And he was so concerned with his failures in his past. But one day, God began to speak to him more and more and open to him the forgiveness of the cross. What it really means that he's truly washed, that all of it is truly under blood, that the debt has been completely paid. And when he began to sing, see that, he wrote a hymn, and many of you know it, the hymn was Amazing Grace. The multitudes sing today across the whole world. The whole world knows that hymn. And he had a young man in his congregation that was suffering from serious depression. And the young man, when he would talk with John Newton, all he could talk about was his sin and his failures. And he felt like he was cut off from God. He, he was just under the lies of accusation. They were, they were literally resonating inside of his heart. They were singing his strings. And John Newton actually wrote this letter. I want to put it on the screen and I want to read it to you. This is what he said to the young man. He said, you cannot be too aware of all your inward and inbred sins. But you may be, and indeed you are improperly affected by them. You express not only too low of an opinion of yourself, which is certainly right, but you also express too low of an opinion of the person, the work, and the promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. You know what John Newton was doing? He was taking a young man who was being lied to under the lies of accusation where God's, God's holiness was being elevated and God's love was being hidden and he began to bring the full counsel of God to this young man and bring the love of God with his holiness and say, this is the right balance. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even, and here's the thing, yourself, if you really want him. Oh. All right, Pastor Michael, that sounds great. I appreciate all the theology on this. I appreciate you going through a little bit of Ephesians chapter 6. That's good, but how does this apply how do I take this truth and start living it out in my life where I could start seeing which voice is really the enemy, which voice is mine, which voice is God? How do I begin to disarm the strategies of Satan? How do I take down the lies of accusation? How do I take down the lies of temptation? Well, I have this book in my library. I've had it for years. You can see it's stained from grape juice and I have a million paper clips in it with just writing all over the book. I mean, I, I write everywhere in it. This book was written by one of my favorite, favorite Puritan writers, Thomas Brooks. I love the Puritans. Samuel Petto, uh, Thomas Chris, John Flavel, John Owen, uh, William Bridge, Thomas Brooks. And, and, and Brooks is my favorite out of all of them. I mean, he's phenomenal. And he wrote a book. You wanna, you wanna read the title of this book? I'll read it to you. Listen to this. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices and the covenant of grace. 
And I look through this book every year. I go through and I look at different passages and I write new things and all this stuff. And what Thomas Brooks does in this book, I love what he does. He takes like 60 to 80 different strategies, different lies, and the category of lies of temptation and the lies of accusation. And he begins to expose them in the book, how the enemy actually works in the place of our lives. And what I want to do is I want to put a few of them on the screen. I've done this in the past, actually. But I'm going to put them up on the screen. I'm going to go through them one by one. And I'm going to begin with how the enemy tempts us. The self-talk that happens in our hearts, the lies of temptation, to get us to step out and to do something to be able to suffer the consequences later on and to set traps for us to try to diminish or try to destroy our faith. Let me put the first one up on the screen. Number one, you ready? He shows you the bait and he hides the hook. He gets you to look at the short-term pleasures and hides from you the long-term miseries. I know this one. I've suffered this one. I have people tell me all the time sometimes, well, David committed adultery. David murdered someone, so it's okay if I do this. It's okay if I get divorced. It's okay if I do this. It's okay if I do that. I said, yeah, yeah. Have you ever read the rest of the Psalms? What he went through after he repented? I mean, he suffered. He went through serious con- He opened up a door for the enemy to come in and bring all types of lies of accusations. And you want to see what he dealt with? Go read through the Psalms. I don't know about you. I'd rather deal with the lies of temptation and shut the door to that, not give him a foothold, than walk through what David had to walk through. Right? So he tries to do it this way. Number two, ready? He gets you to rationalize sin as virtue. I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not gossiping. I'm just asking for others to, to pray for this person because they, they need the help. I'm not greedy. You know, I, don't, I know I don't give to missions. I know I don't give to the church. I know I'm thrifty. That's what it is. I'm thrifty. I'm, I'm making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm saving the money, right? Number three, he shows you the sins of Christian leaders and other Christians you respect. So you say to yourself, well, he did it too, so it's okay for me to give in. I've seen this. I have met a God that I've honored and, and I respect deeply and I've gotten their personal journals and I've read some of the things and you start rationalizing. Well, they gave into this or they weren't great parents here so it's okay for me to ignore my kids for ministry for a little while. They did it and God anointed them. Number four, he overstretches God's mercy. He says, God will forgive you. That's his job. <sighs> Yeah, he will. He will forgive you. But make no mistake about it, you're setting a trap for yourself. You've opened up a door. You've set yourself on shaky ground to let the enemy have ways in your life you could not even imagine. Sin is not worth the pain of what the enemy is about to bring. It's just not worth it. I've learned that. I've had that self-talk in my own heart. Oh, God will forgive you. Number five, he makes you bitter over suffering until you say, I've suffered, therefore I deserve this. I just walked through this one. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. When we went through COVID, when I went through COVID, we got attacked, spiritually attacked, like you couldn't even believe. And I'll share more of that when I get into other messages. But I went through one of the hellish months you could ever possibly imagine. And when we got back from vacation, all this self-talk was going on in my heart. And I kept on hearing, you deserve something. You walk through something you deserve. So I stopped and I talked to my wife and I said, honey, I really feel like I deserve something for what I went through. And this is what I said there. I said, I think God wants to give me or bless me with a butterfly knife. 
I, I know it sounds crazy. I said, I need a butter, like the ones that swing all over the place, like nunchucks all over. And she was looking at me and saying, what are you talking about? I said, think about it. Think about how cool it would be the FedEx guy drops off a package and I pull out a butterfly knife and I open it right in front of him. Or I'm hanging out in the garage and I'm playing with a butter. I was like, I think I need a butterfly knife. And I don't know where this came, the temptation, the self-talk, right? So she looked at me like I was kidding. She looked at me like, you, this, you're going to pass this. This is nuts. And then I grabbed Landon as she went to bed and I drove over to Shields and I, I went and got a butterfly knife. I brought the butterfly knife home. And, and, and last night I'm in the garage and I'm flipping the butterfly knife all over. To, I think this is amazing. And I'm, I'm going like this and I'm like, yeah, and the door's open. And she's in the kitchen cooking a meal. She could see me. And suddenly out of nowhere as I'm flipping, there's just blood all over the ground. There's just blood everywhere. And, and I grab my finger. I, cut my, I grab my finger and I'm holding it like this thinking I cut it to the bone. And I look up. I look up thinking my wife is going to take charge. And she saw what I done. And she saw the blood squirting everywhere. And she's going to come and she's going to find me and drive me off to the hospital and get me stitches. And I'm holding my finger just waiting for my wife to come. And I look up and she's not moving. She's not moving. She's literally feeding the kids and she's just looking at me and she's got this look. She's looking straight through the door and I could see it on her face. I could see exactly what she was thinking. She was thinking this, how much longer do I have to be married to this idiot? Literally, literally, she's literally doing the math in her head. She's thinking, okay, most men lived about 73, 74. He's 40 years old. I got 33 more years of this. Can I deal with it? Can I get through it? And I'm looking at her. I was like, honey, you got to help. My finger's about to fall off. And she said, I'll get to you once I'm done with the kids. Meanwhile, I'm just bleeding. I'm thinking I'm going to faint. Poor Landon, he's eating at the table. <laughs> he's like, I can't eat anymore. Daddy's bleeding all over the place. So... <laughs> So long story short, the butterfly knife might end up on eBay, and I've learned the consequences for the self-talk of temptation, to say the least. Number six, he shows you how many bad people who are not believers have such great lives so he could get you to say serving God and playing by the rules doesn't pay off. I know that one. Number seven. He gets you to compare one part of your life to another until you think to yourself, well, I'm really good over here. I always serve in my church and I read my Bible every day. So the self-talk says, it's okay if I do that over there. It's all right. Not a big deal. Here's some of the lies of temptation that the enemy uses as strategies in spiritual warfare against us. Now, let me give you some lies of accusations. I'm going to put them on the screen. I have four of them. Let me read to you to them. Ready? The lies of accusation. He causes us to look more at our sin than our Savior. You know what child psychologists always say? They say for every criticism you give a child, you have to give them five compliments or they're going to grow up hating themselves. Why? Because the criticisms really stick in the heart and the compliments don't. And there's actually biblical reasons for that. I could go through the scriptures and show you why that is, but that's just the truth. And I love what Thomas Brooks says in, in the, the book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says this, for every one look that you give your sin, you need to take five looks at your Savior. And the devil does everything he can to keep you from doing that. We gotta be looking at the finished work of Christ constantly in our life and reminding ourselves over and over and over, especially when we see the places of our sin. Number two, he causes us to obsess over past sins that have done damage and that cannot be undone. We can't let them go, we can't move on once they have been forgiven. A divorce, 
a child that committed suicide, whatever it is, and as a parent, now you're thinking, that was my fault, that was that issue. You, you, know, you know why I think, and this is my personal opinion, you know why I believe with all of my heart that God used to say that David was a man after his own heart? And people tell me all the time, well, he was a worshiper, that's what it meant, or, or he just had a heart after God. And, but for me, do you know why I believe God said that about him? Because David, I want you to get this, was a man of frailty. He made a lot of mistakes. He sinned. He literally killed people. He committed adultery. Listen, he counted the people, and like, what was it, 70,000 or 20,000 actually were killed through a plague, whatever it was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you did that? You were the inventor of COVID? Like, could you, right? He messed up a lot of places. But you know what was amazing about David? After he wept, after he repented, after he cried, after he sought forgiveness, you know what's incredible? He always received God's mercy. He always got up and said, no, God is still with me. And God is surely gonna continue his promises for my seed, for my generation, for my children, for the things that he's spoken even coming after me. How can you say that after you killed a man and your own child died because of your own sin? How do you say that? And yet David was able to speak it all through the Psalms. He repented, he wept, but he was able to receive God's mercy Say, no, I will continue to go on with God. Because if anybody, if God was to mark the iniquity of any of our sins, who amongst us would be able to stand? There's mercy, there's love, there's forgiveness. And you know what I believe with all of my heart? God looked down at that and said, that's a man after my own heart. He believes my word. He believes I am good. I've told him about my mercy and he's taking it to heart. He's walking in it. He's not making his own judgments in his life out of his own pride. He's trusting the judgment that I have made. And therefore, he is a man after my own heart. He truly trusts me. Number three, he makes Christians think that the trouble they are facing must be punishment and that God is mad at them. Number four, He makes Christians think that their inner struggles and feelings are abnormal and that other Christians don't deal with them. So you say to yourself, if I were a real Christian, who said that before? You ever hear that self-talk in your heart? Ever hear that one? If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts or desires. I deal with young people who deal with same-sex attraction. They've laid that down, but sometimes they're not delivered of all the feelings. And they come into the church and they have these things rumbling around inside of them. And they're not acting upon them, but they feel like nobody else struggles with it. So then they start thinking to themselves, I must not be a real Christian. When nothing further could be from the truth. The self-talk, the lies, the strategies of the enemy, the spiritual attack is beginning to lay hold inside of their hearts. Do you see how this works? Okay. So what do we do with all this? Well, now that we know some of this and we read through some of this, where is the final application? How do we wrap this all up? Let me give you two points of how you can stand in the midst of this type of spiritual warfare and how you can disarm the lies of temptation and the lies of accusation from the enemy. Two points, are you ready? Number one, I want you to see this. You have to know which particular devices Satan uses on you. When I read through that list, did you recognize any of them in any one of those categories? Did anything jump off and say, oh, that, I get caught up there. I hear that self-talk. I deal with that. See, when you know the type of devices that Satan uses on you, and it's different for all of us, what begins to happen is you disarm him just from the knowledge itself. The scripture says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you understand that's not the voice of God, when you understand that's not your own voice, but that's actually a voice of an accuser or the enemy trying to tempt you, and you're able to see it, that alone is an antidote to the venom. 
It brings it out into the light. And what does it say? If you bring things into the light, you make your stand. The enemy will flee. Right? That's why it's so important to know what types of attacks he brings onto you, what you are susceptible to. And what you need to do is not just look through this list, but what I would do is sit down with my spouse, sit down with close friends, people who know you, where maybe you're too close to the situation and you can't make the right judgment, but you say, what do you see in my life? When the enemy attacks me, how does he come at me? How does he accuse me? How does he tempt me? What do you see? And then you begin to take that discernment from other people that you trust in your life, from your own times with God, from the list that I just gave you, and you start bringing to light the self-talk that the enemy is trying to do in your own hearts. That's number one. Know which particular devices Satan uses on you. And number two, and I close with this, the gospel is the full armor of God. I'm going to go through it. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield, but all of it is just the gospel. That's what it is. And the Bible says, if you'll put on the gospel, you will stand against the strategies and the lies of the enemy. Listen to me. I want you to get this. When you go through heavy spiritual attack, you write this down. You need to drown yourself in the gospel. Drown yourself. This is a time... To, to put on sermons that you can be trusted with, pastors that you trust. This is a time to open up the word again, to let friends in. I went through a spiritual battle so dark, and Beth knows this, and I couldn't even get into my word. I was just in such a dark place. I was so discouraged. I was so hopeless. But you know what I started to do? I let friends come in, Christian friends. They would stay with me in the night. They would stay with me throughout the day, and they would pray, and they would speak the word of God over me over and over and over and over again until I was drowned, drowned in the gospel. See, the gospel does two things in our lives at the exact same time. It is the most incredible, spiritual, mysterious thing you could ever imagine. The gospel has the ability to humble us and to exalt us all at the same exact moment. So the gospel shows us we're sinners. The gospel shows us in our flesh there's no good thing. The gospel shows us that Jesus had to come on our behalf. He had to be beaten. He had to die. He had to take the wrath of God. And when you begin to be humbled in that way, you look at Jesus and you say, if he died for me like that, I want to serve him. I want to love him. And it begins to counteract the humility, begins to counteract the temptations, the lies of the tempter. It begins to disarm the strategies. But at the exact same time, it exalts us. It tells you you're a child of God. You've been utterly and fully forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You've been written in the land book of life. You're seated in heavenly places. And now that side of the gospel that exalts us begins to come and fights against the lies of accusation. Do you see what it does when you surround yourself in the gospel? It does both things at the exact same moment. And the enemy is completely exposed. The enemy has no ground. He's not being able to get those things inside of your own heart. It defeats him. Stand with me, Springs Church. So I was praying, and now I'm going to bring it to a close. As I went through my own bout, and I started getting different emails and different text messages from just congregants in the church who are just going through all types of attacks. We're getting hit every which way. And I started praying. I said, God, why is it so heavy? Why are we in a season where it just feels like the spiritual warfare is so real? And I began to realize, do you realize 
We just came off a three-day fast where we had about 500 people here fasting and praying together for the kingdom of God, repenting, dealing with issues in our hearts, getting freedom. Do you realize we just got back, our Las Vegas team, where how many people got saved? You can't even count it, right? It was just out of control, beyond blessing. We started raising up an evangelist street team. Elijah got hit. His mom got hit. He was leading the street team. We're starting to send people out our doors. We're starting a new mission program for young people who want to end up as missionaries around the world. Let me tell you something. You start doing that as a church. You start focusing on intercession. You start focusing on sending people out. You better believe you're about to put a target on your back. And the enemy is going to come and he's going to fight. But what does Paul say? Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. If you put on the full armor of God, you will stand. He'll come at you with lies of accusation. He'll come at you with lies of temptation. But God will expose those lies. And he'll show you what's your voice, what the enemy voice, what's his voice. Not only will he expose the lies, but he'll drown you in the gospel where he will humble you and exalt you all at the same time, disarming both at the exact same moment. And this is why I felt, I, I don't want to have an altar call just to have an altar call. I'm not, I'm not interested. But what I want to do is I want to open up these altars for people who say, Pastor Michael, I've been fighting. I've been, I'm under those lies of accusation. I'm under those lies of temptation. And what I need, even some of it's been exposed here and now, but what I need over the next week is that the Holy Spirit would bring into light. He'd show me what the enemy is doing, his craftiness, his wiles, and that he would drown me in the gospel again. He'd open up my heart to be able to receive both truths and be able to push this thing off. And if you need that this morning, can I just coming back as a place of servanthood and love for you, just pray for you? I just want to pray for you. I'm going to open up the altar. You could come forward. I'm going to ask you, anybody, anybody wants the prayer and you've been under those tacks, I want to lift you up. And you can just come forward now. Just step out of your seat. And I want to lift you up. I want to pray for you. Come forward. Come forward. You're under it. We're going to do warfare for each other. Those who are sitting and maybe you're not up at the altar right now or you feel like that's not me at this place, I need, I need your prayers today. We're going to pray as a body, as a congregation for one another. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. You're under lies of accusation. You're under lies of temptation. Come here. And then this is what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to lift up a song. You know, when I went through my bout with COVID, I fell into a very deep depression. I couldn't pray. I couldn't read. I couldn't even get out of my bed. But I remember when I went into it, the Lord gave me a promise. He told me, I'm going to pull you out of this pit. He said, I'm going to pull you out of this pit. But he did say this. This is what he said. Along this journey, somewhere you are going to have to exercise some type of faith. That's how this works, Michael. you got to exercise some type of faith. I'm going to give you the promises. I'm going to be there. But at some point, even if there's just doubt in your heart, if you feel like there's no way, you just have to stretch yourself on my promise and just confess with your mouth, God, I feel nothing in my heart. I don't even think it's a reality. I don't even think you could get me out of this, but I'm confessing now by faith that if your word says it, I'm gonna trust it. If your word says it, I'm gonna trust it. And, you, and what I wanna do today is I'm gonna ask the worship team to lead us in a song. And can I be honest? This is gonna be our step of faith. God's saying, it's going to take some faith on your part. I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to speak words to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you, but you have to stretch yourself out. And if you'll just give me ju just a mustard seed of faith. I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not asking you to be Mr. Powerhouse here. No, it's just a little bit. That's all I need to begin to work with. And I can begin to disarm the enemy. I can expose him, every one of his lies. I could drown you in the gospel and I can pluck you out. 
I could pluck you out. So today, can we by faith, whether you feel it in the heart, you could confess it to God. It's hard for me to even believe. I don't feel it in my heart. But I'm going to give the song a worship. I'm going to let it come off my lips as an act, a small act of faith before you. And I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in. And I'm going to sing with you. And all of us, those that are in our seats, let's lift up the sacrifice of worship and faith to God now as we believe for victory in this spiritual warfare right now. Hallelujah. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website springs.church.